All right. Well, this Sunday, we are going to be wrapping up our uh, missions emphasis time by spending a little time in James 4, verses 13 through 17. Let me go ahead and read these verses. Again, that's James 4, verses 13 through 17. James, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Uh, James begins this passage with the words, come now. Uh, this is one of those rare times in our Bibles when the human author, in this case James, is seeing something so ridiculous and absurd that words fail him and he just kind of sputters, come on you guys, <laughs> that's really what's happening here, come now, he says. The Holy Spirit has given James eyes to see and describe something that people are doing that he describes as arrogant and boastful and evil. And he's been helped to see it clearly, but others don't seem to see it at all. So he launches off into the subject by saying kind of incredulously and emphatically, come now, come on, you guys, don't you see it? And this is the thing that he finds so arrogant, boastful, evil. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And when I hear those words, I almost want to come back to James with, come on, James, <laughs> come now. That's arrogant, that's boastful, that's evil? To trade, make a profit, make a living? What are you talking about? This is the scenario that James attaches these words to, boastful, arrogant, evil. However, I really don't think that it lands on most of your ears that way. After all, James is not describing murder or selling drugs or human trafficking. He is talking about making plans to travel around, make a little money. And honestly, that sounds like most of our Tuesdays. Is James a communist? Is he opposed to enterprise generally, the pursuit of profit? Is that what he's after? What exactly, James, is evil about traveling, trading, making some money? My guess is that for most people in this room, that just sounds hardworking, industrious, not arrogant, boastful, and evil as James describes it. I'll cut right to the chase. I think the reason why James says that this way of speaking and making plans is evil is because it is not because it is an ungodly thing to do. He is not describing a thing that is ungodly here, but because it is godless. It is completely from top to bottom godless. 
There's nothing inherently immoral or wicked about the plan that he describes in verse 13. James is not condemning the pursuit of making a living or even pursuing profit. And I know that, we know that, because in verse 15, instead of saying those things are bad, he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And the do this or do that are the plan he described in verse 13. So James is not calling out these people for forming wicked, ungodly plans, but rather godless ones. And that is really the point for our morning together. And this is how I want to wrap up our month-long conversation about missions, love and action. And I'm hopeful that our brief study of this passage this morning will save someone from wasting the days you've been given under the sun in a godless way of living. When James looks on people who live the way he describes in verse 13, he leads off with those words, come now. And that expression, then and now, in our language also, is meant to draw attention to something that is patently absurd, ridiculous. And it is a ridiculous absurdity to live in a godless way, especially if you believe in God. And this is so because God is the ultimate reality. He is central to all of life. He's the main character. It's in him that we live and move and have our being, Acts 17. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind, Job 12. Deuteronomy 30.20 says that we should obey his voice and hold fast to him, for he is our life and length of days. James underscores that God is the ultimate reality by invoking the sobering specter of our own mortality. There are many things that might challenge God in our hearts and minds as the central thing around which we build our lives. When you look at someone who is building their lives around something other than God, don't you want to have a come on now kind of conversation with them? How can you snap them out of it? People are so enchanted with whatever it is that they're chasing. How can we break the trance? Verse 14 is like James throwing cold water in their face. (laughs) Come on now. By invoking death and describing life as brief, transient, fragile, vaporous, like mist, that rises in the morning and then is quickly burned away. James is aggressively confronting all the things that people might be tempted to make central to their lives. Somebody might be totally building their life around building a business, pursuing a degree, building a family, restoring a car, honing their physical body to its maximum potential. These are the things that people fill their days with and try to derive meaning from and build their lives around the pursuit of. And James basically says, yeah, but you're going to die. And soon. What are you doing? Come on. He says, yet you you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then... 
vanishes. It's done. After all, how trivial and irrelevant will be our plans and pursuits when we come to the end of our life? Some people get so caught up in preparing for life that they never prepare for their death. And this reminds me of what C.T. Studd said in his famous poem, Only One Life. He wrote, Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Hebrews 4, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the, to the eyes of him to whom we must give a, an account. There is a day coming when we will all give an account, and we should live today for what will matter eternally. We should be living now in a way that reflects the central importance of our relationship with God. Some people pour all their efforts into preparing for their life, but they never prepare for when they come to the end of it. And I'm not saying, James is not saying, and more importantly, God is not saying in his word through the inspired pen of James that building a business or a family or pursuing a degree or restoring a car or any of a million other things that we might fill our days with are ungodly. They're not bad. In this passage, he is warning against the vacuous emptiness the meaningless waste of a godless way of using your days under the sun, of living. I think the sort of person that James is describing in this passage is someone who acknowledges that there is a God, but then, even though God is the ultimate reality, not just the giver of life, but the point of life, they don't make God central to their lives and plans. Their thinking and passions are totally consumed with things that have their beginning and end in this brief life that, again, is like a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. They are not mindful of God as they go about forming goals, pursuing careers, and making preparations. Their plans may not be ungodly, but they are godless because they are not done in intentional submission to the will of God. They acknowledge that God is, but then they live as though he does not factor in at all. James, more than any other writer in the Bible, is concerned with human speech. If we were studying our way through the book of James, rather than just kind of cherry-picking this passage out, and we'd been moving verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we came to this point... This would have been a well-established pattern in the book of James that we would be noting again now. Because James, in nearly every chapter, focuses on some aspect of human speech. And our passage for this morning is yet another example of this that happens again and again and again in the book of James. One of the basic principles that should guide us in understanding all of these various forms of sinful speech is actually something Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34. Jesus said, man speaks out of the abundance of his heart. And James is like an extended commentary on that observation, that what's in our heart will come flowing out through our mouths. The basic principle is that the tongue is like this diagnostic tool. So verse 13 and verse 15, verse 13 where it says, uh, describes the, these plans, 
And then verse 15, where it says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this and do that. These two verses are not ultimately describing a right way to speak and a wrong way to speak, but rather a heart that is wrong and a heart that is right. And by adding the words, if the Lord wills, James is not saying that there is some magical power in the combination of those words, where if you just say those words, <laughs> that it makes everything fine. He is saying that those words, when they are spoken, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that, that way of speaking is the overflow of a heart that lives in humble submission to God. This is what he's saying. The first statement, here's my plan, here's my life plan. <laughs> I'm going to go and do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this, this, that, blah, 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 blah. That's spoken in a way that's godless. It flows from a heart where God, you might say he exists, but he doesn't factor in. You haven't talked to him. You haven't made him a part of that plan. You haven't sought him about it. This is your plan. And this is what James says, well, that's arrogant. That's presumptuous. That's evil. It's godless. Instead, you ought to say, instead, your heart ought to say, if the Lord wills. He is saying with these words that the presence of those words reveals a heart that is humble before God, that acknowledges the lordship of God, that God has the right and the prerogative to change our plans at will. That, one, that one's days are numbered by God. It reveals a heart that recognizes its dependency on God, a need for God, a trust in God, and a confidence in God. The first statement in verse 13 reveals a heart that is full of presumption, self-sufficiency, self-determination, and which not only presumes to know what will happen in the future, but actually presumes to create a future without consulting God. Godless plans are essentially a declaration of independence from God. Such a person might cry out to God in a crisis, but then the rest of the time they say, I've got it. When things are fine again, they go back to making God something that is peripheral to their pursuits. I'll fit him in when I can. Rather than the very center of their existence and the rock upon which their life is built. We need to always remember that what God wants from us is a relationship. The relationship is to be the most important one to us. And verses like Luke 14, 26 or 14, 33 really frame out the central importance of our relationship with God in pretty aggressive confrontational language. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Ugh. Wow. Or Luke 14, 33, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. I'm not gravy on the potato. I am not going to be a spiritual accessory. I'm the main thing. Now, my most important earthly relationship is with my wife, Sarah. Uh, Jesus says, unless I come to him and I don't hate her. <laughs> I don't think that's what that means exactly. I think he's not trying to lessen our view of our spouses or our parents or our children. He is elevating in our, our minds the central importance of Jesus. Even as important and great as those relationships are, 
That's supposed to be even there. But Sarah is my most important earthly relationship. And I think that she loves me best when she loves God most. But just imagine, imagine, especially if you're married, if you made a decision like today or tomorrow, I will go to such and such a town, I'll live there for a year, I'll trade and make a profit. Imagine if you said that and you never talked to your spouse. Because I know how that would go. (laughs) Now, how often do we do that with the most important central relationship in our lives? I'm going to go do this, I'm going to do that. And I just do, like God factors in, not at all. I don't talk to him, I don't consult him, I don't seek out his will in the matter. Yeah, it wouldn't go well with my, your spouse, and, it, and it's evil and wicked when we live that way in relationship with God. It's very dishonoring, and yes, also arrogant, boastful, and evil to acknowledge that God is, but not make him central to our lives. At first, verse 17 seems like kind of an awkward add-on that's unrelated to the verses that come before it, but the word so that, be, that uh, begins the verse links it to the rest and also indicates that it flows from the verses that came immediately before. So I'm just going to read the whole thing in context, and then we come to this very last verse, which I think really is probably the key to the whole thing. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make a trade and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And then it says, So, or therefore, in light of all that, here's a statement I'm going to make. Pay attention. My words, not God's. Therefore, so, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. In, in the Bible, there are sins of commission and there are sins of omission. A sin of commission is doing something bad, like stealing. You commit the act of stealing. A sin of omission is failing to do something good, like giving to the needy. Giving to the needy is the opposite of stealing, right? Instead of taking money, you're withholding your money from somebody who needs it. Uh, One is omission, a failure to do what is right and good. The other is a commission. It's It's an overt act that is wrong and wicked. We understand this in relationship to lying. Right? Lying, if I said a lie, fabricated some untrue statement, that would be, uh, a, I'd be committing a lie. If I fail to say what is true, well, that's an omission. I, I should have spoken up, I should have said what was needed, but instead I just kind of kept my mouth shut. That's an omission. So a sin of omission is failing to do some good thing that God requires of us. And I think that when we put this last sentence in the context of what James has been saying up to this point, we are on good ground in understanding that what James means 
is that by not making God and his purposes central to their pursuits, these folks were committing a whopping sin of omission. And now to bring it all home, at the end of Missions Emphasis Month, we all know the Great Commission to go and make disciples. We all know that Jesus has said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We all know that we've been given gifts and resources to be used for God's glory and service to others. We all know the command to love God with our whole self and to love our neighbor as ourself. We all know that the fields are ripe for the harvest, but the laborers are few. We all know the command to pray. We all know the command to be intimately involved in a church family. We all know the command to help the widow and the orphan in distress. We could keep going on and on and on with the things that we know. You know that these are the right things to build your life around. These are the right things to do, and if you fail to do it, it is sin. If we come to the end of our life and it was just filled with traveling to this town and that, trading and making a profit, and our life was never governed and filled by the great cause of Christ, I will have wasted my life making it godless. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Uh, in the midweek email, I was sharing that at the end of every year, a group of my friends and I, we always um, share predictions for the coming year. So far, none of my predictions have proven true. <laughs> None. I recently looked over our predictions from last December, and I was struck by the fact that neither I nor any of my friends predicted Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Kind of a big deal. I did not predict that Will Smith would slap Chris Rock at the Oscars. None of us said anything about Elon Musk attempting to buy Twitter. Nobody mentioned a leaked draft decision from the Supreme Court pointing towards a possible overturn of Roe versus Wade. None of us foresaw the baby formula shortage or $5 gas, and most, the biggest omission, the biggest thing we failed to see, none of us said anything about Johnny Depp or Amber Heard. Not a single thing. How blind. We made other predictions, and there's still time. We'll see if they come to pass. But judging by our track record so far, don't hold your breath. And the plain and obvious truth that I take away from this annual exercise is that I don't know what tomorrow holds. I just have no clue what's coming down the pipe. I don't even know if I'll be there. I don't know if I'm going to survive this death march from Ashland to Washburn tomorrow on the river. <laughs> I don't know if my friends will hide my body in the woods and pretend it never happened. <laughs> I don't know. Tomorrow and all the days that stretch out past that are one big question mark for me. I don't know. It's interesting to me that James in this passage talks about what we know twice. The first thing he says in verse 14 is you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know. And then he wraps it up by saying, you know, you know, the right thing to do. 
And really this begs one question. What am, I'm not going to worry about what I'm going to do a year from now. What am I going to do today? I don't know if I'll be alive a year from now. But I've been given today. What, what am I going to do with the days God has given me? When I come to the end of my life, and I built my life around servicing a mortgage and paying down my car payments, when I come to the end of it, am I going to look back and be like, nailed it? <laughs> Is that the great reason why you were made? I'm betting everything in this moment as we come down to the end of this passage that you have, over the course of your life, felt a stirring sense in your heart, and it's true, it's from God, that you were made to serve a cause greater than yourself. You were made to live in service to a great cause. And so many people are just wasting their lives traveling, trading, making a profit. And when they come to the end, it's tragic. Only one life, which will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ, for Christ will last. How are we going to spend today? That's the question I come away from these passages with. That's what I come away with at the end of this mission's emphasis time. I'll close with this. As I was in my um, study this week, I was thinking about what if, what if I was, what, what if I had not lived? What if I lived as James described in verse 13? What if I've lived essentially a godless life? It's not that I don't believe in God. It's not that I don't think he's great. I just haven't really lived for him. I was too busy making a living and providing for my family and just the momentum of life carried me along and here I am, maybe I'm older now and I just feel like I have blown it. I have not lived my life the way I should have with God and his great kingdom purposes at the center of my existence. What do I do now, Josh? <laughs> I want to share with you a very hopeful passage out of Matthew 20. It's fairly long, hang in there with me. I wouldn't share it if I didn't think it was important. I felt like the Spirit led me to share this, for sure, at the end of our time. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, in other words, almost just before quitting time, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. 
And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. There's a lot in there. We could spend a lot of time studying that passage. But I just share that to let you know that if you are in the 11th hour of your life and you feel like I have lived a godless existence up till now, it is not too late to go into the vineyard. I love what he says here. He said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? <laughs> and then he says, well, let's, let's have you go into the vineyard. Because it is not too late. Again, we don't know what tomorrow holds. There's no reverse button. We can't go back and change the days that came before. But again, we have this day. We have this season. We have what days we do under the sun. And again, as James says... The one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for them it is sin. There is a way of living today that factors God in and honors him as the ultimate reality. And that oftentimes finds meaningful expression in a life marked by love and action, service, uh, participation in the great harvest that is happening all around us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this month. I thank you for the conversations we have had over the course of it. I think back to when Pastor Andrew first launched out into this month with his sermon on Philippians 2, 3 through 11, and challenged us to consider others as more worthy than ourselves. And all along the way, God, you have been speaking to us through your word, and we've been listening. Father, we know the right thing to do. And Father, I pray that for me and my friends, we would not just live our lives as so many do, just filled with the, the business of, of these days, of working and paying bills, as though that's the great, as good and important as it is to be responsible and to do that. God, you made us for something higher than that. And God, I pray that as we go about our, our lives, as we go about traveling, trading, making a profit, making a living, God, that you would weave your redemption, redemptive calling in our lives into all of it. God, I pray that as we go into work, we would be missionaries there. As we travel, God, we would be open to your, your prerogative to redirect, to lay a different destination on, on our hearts as we travel. God, whatever it is, God, you're Lord. God, you've opened our eyes to see who you are. We believe, we trust, we love you, we think you're excellent. And Father, we invite you, Lord, to redirect our plans. If you are willing, Lord, we will do this or that. And if you're not, then please tell us what is your will so that we can do that. Father, I pray that we as a church in the months ahead, years ahead, however much time we have between now and when Jesus comes back, God, that we who know the right thing to do would be eager to do it. 
Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.